0: Please open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm is written by Moses, as Pastor Eric pointed out, the only Psalm written by Moses that we have, and it's in fact the oldest Psalm in the Psalter, Psalm 90. The word of the Lord reads, prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were born, where you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Or as a watch in the night. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger. And by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be, and be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us, and the years we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants, and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands." Father, we need you as we come before your word to hear from you. Lord, it's our desire to hear from no other voice but from you. So God, would you impress your word upon our hearts for your purposes in Christ's name. Amen. As stewards of God's resources, we value being a good steward of what he has given to us. But at all of God's blessed gifts, I think one of the most precious blessing that he has bestowed upon us is the gift of time. Time is arguably our greatest commodity. Money you can earn back, relationships can be renewed, homes, cars can be replaced, there'll always be other jobs, but you can never get back your time. Time is your greatest commodity. That's why one of the most precious gifts you can give to someone else is a minute of your time. To give of something that you can never get back, time. And even though time is possibly our greatest commodity, it is often our greatest loss. And it's something that we often waste. That time, our time, is wasted often over futile, pointless, unnecessary things. Beloved, some of the greatest threats that come across your path day after day is distraction. Things that will pull your attention and your heart and your time away from what is most important. Distraction knocks at your door constantly. It is a subtle threat of the enemy. At the end of your day, reflect what will your life show? When you're on your deathbed, what if it was today? What will your life show? Will you have been found to be a good steward of time, of your time? If your time comes, it will. What will your life show? You have one life to live, and that's it. One life. And Psalm 90 really brings this out for us. What I want to fix our eyes on this morning are just four pictures in this psalm that should motivate you to redeem The time. Four pictures in this psalm that should motivate you to redeem the time. This is one of those things that we know God is eternal, but what this psalm does is it interrogates the human soul with eternity. It presses upon your conscience and it should press upon your heart to see eternity awaits. And what will you do with your time now? This psalm should haunt you with the reality that time is fleeting. And what have you done with your time so far? And what will you do with your time now? It should haunt us. Time is precious. This psalm interrogates us with this reality of eternity. That if God is eternal, are you humbled by his eternality? Does it humble you? Does it motivate you? Does it produce a sense of urgency in you? May the Lord cause us to view these pictures rightly so that we can have a right view of time and redeem it rightly. Let's look at this first picture that Moses points out for us. In verses 1 and 2, that the first picture is, is simply God's eternality. That he gives us a picture of God's eternality. He begins the psalm by affirming who God is. Look how he describes it in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That Moses here reflects, he sits there in time and reflects, Lord, even before this, all generations before me and even after me, you have remained God. That as Moses is reflecting upon all their experiences, he realizes that God has been their dwelling place. In other words, their help, their assistance, their stronghold. That he has been, in other words, we can say, Lord God, you have been our hiding place. That you have kept us. You have hid us under your powerful wing. That you, God, and you alone have been our hiding place. He sees all the threats. He sees all the history of their sin. He knows all that awaits them. And he realizes the fact, out of all things, God, you have been God. Yesterday, today, and forevermore. And what a comfort that is to us to reflect upon that God is an eternal God. That he begins this picture as we reflect upon our life and our time, we must begin with the God of all time. That he is eternal. That he is the eternal God. This echoes this idea of power that comes with eternity. That when you think about God's eternity, that you should also relate his eternity with his power. That because he is beyond all time, because he is outside of the construct of time, that he is all-powerful even today and tomorrow and forevermore. In fact, it reflects Moses' understanding of this power that comes with God's eternality. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 26, this is Moses' blessing to the people, knowing that his death awaits him, that his time has come. He reflects upon this blessing, and in verse 26, he says, there is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rides the heavens to your help, and through the skies to his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you, and he said, destroy. So as he thinks about God, as he seeks to bless them, he points them to who God is, and he reflects upon all that God has done for them in his powerful arm. He says he brought us out from the powerful enemy of Egypt, and he said destroy, that with God's eternality, he realized this eternality brings power. And that's what I think is a comforting reality as we begin to think about the God of time, that he has forever been their hiding place because he is the God who always has been, always is. And who always will be. So he says, from everlasting to everlasting. That's the best way he can describe it. From eternity to eternity, you are God. From forever to forever, all the time, Lord, you have remained God. And he still will be. And he's still God today, amen? That he is the God of all time who sustains and is our hiding place for his people for all generations. And he uses this, to, this imagery to describe the birth, like when he's talking about the land and the mountains, these great cosmic wonders that we can look at and marvel at. And yet he says and uses imagery of birth to describe these massive realities that we think have been here for ages, and they have been. But he says, no, even before you gave birth... To this earth, before you gave birth to these mountains, these great cosmic wonders that have been around, that scientists still marvel to understand to this day, you were there. That the snow upon these mountaintops that have been there for ages are just like babies to you, because you have been for everlasting to everlasting, that God is eternal. Now, what do we mean when we say God is eternal? We have to understand our definitions rightly. And when we say God is eternal, we're saying he is without beginning, he is without ending, he is without succession of moments. He's without beginning or ending or without succession of moments. There is never a time where God was not is, that he is, that God has always been and he always will be and forevermore God is. He is outside our understanding of time. He far exceeds it. He's not bound to it. And though he acts in time, he is not bound by that time. What a comfort that is to us as we reflect upon time and eternity. That this God is the God of all time. That his powerful arm that has kept the saints of old is keeping you today. The same arm that has kept the saints of old will keep you tomorrow. That the same God that kept our great, great, great grandparents has been the faithful God who has kept us and this same faithful God will keep our great, great, great grandchildren. That he will remain God. Our lives are in his hands. And though we want to worry and be concerned for the future, Beloved, if God can keep Israel for 300 years in slavery under the leadership of a pagan, wicked ruler, he will surely keep us. He will keep our children. He will keep our grandchildren. And if the Lord shall tarry, he'll keep all them. That he is a God of all power. We must see this. And that's where Moses directs their eyes as he reflects upon God and upon time. He begins with the God of God of all time, the eternal God. But he moves the second picture. Because in light of this, then we must think of us. Second picture is your brevity. Your brevity. I don't think we understand how short life is. I really don't think we understand that. Because first of all, I think we tend to presume upon God's patience in thinking that we'll have an entire lifespan. But even secondly, we often, with the life that we have, waste it. Because we don't realize how short and how precious life is. I mean, in the next several verses, Moses provides us with picture after picture just to describe how short your life is. Like he gives illustration after illustration just to get it through our thick skulls how short your life is. Look what he says in verse three You return man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight, like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass. Which sprouts anew, and in the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. But what happens? Toward evening it fades and withers away. I love how John Piper once noted how one of the greatest tragedies of of American culture is the way that billions and billions of dollars are invested to persuade people to waste the rest of their lives. How much money does our culture waste in order to persuade you to waste the rest of your life? Because really, it goes by the name of retirement. Like, wait till the end. The entire message is you've worked for it. You spent all these years working for it. Now enjoy it. Right? Now you've come to it. Now you've reached the pinnacle there. And then Let's first, in time, set up and prepare, waste all our time worrying, investing. And it's not wrong to plan, but it's the worrying, investing, and thinking, and anticipating. And then now it's here. And then now we're here, and we're like, well, this is all that it is. And so then now we wait for the next wave. And like, it's all this whole time we've wasted time and year and day after day because we're continually looking for something ahead. But really the reality is, is our hearts need to be anchored in today. Like, we're so focused and distracted by every common t- temptation to look ahead. When the kids get older, then. When the kids are out of a house, then. When I retire, then. Like, we're always looking for the next phase. But never satisfied and content with the blessing that you have of today. Not realizing you're hoping that you see tomorrow. But we're so distracted with tomorrow. Tomorrow. But realize how short our life is, how brief it is, now deserves the most attention. Why do you presume that you will even be here tomorrow? Think about at every funeral, what's the grieving sentiment of the family? (sighs) If only we would have known. I just wish I could have. Oh, now we know, we we have to change. Family is so important. This is so important. Now we're going to learn. And then the next relative dies. We have to really, now we must change. Now we got to change things around. Now, hope we now see it's always too late. It's every time when it's too late, we realize what has been wasted. When will we ever learn? When will we ever learn? How do you understand your brevity? Like, how do you understand it? Like, you, I know we understand this intellectually, but how do you really grasp the fact that you can surely die even today? Like, how does that inform your today? Do you, do you consider how short your life is? Do you think about that every breath that you take is just a mere gift of God? And if it's a gift of God, what will you present to him for that gift he's given to you? Do you think about your short life? Do you, do you, does, does it rock your mind? What do you do with this brevity of life? How can we understand this? I think the best way for us to understand brevity, and this is what Moses does, is he compares it to God's eternality. Because look what he does here. He, he says in verse, in verse four that a thousand years in your sight, it's like yesterday. He says it's like a watch in the night. So a thousand years, this great span of time, It's like yesterday to God. Even he says a watch in the night, which is equivalent to four hours. So a 1,000 years, four hours. Put in perspective, since the Lord's birth, it's only been eight hours. It's not even a full night. Like that's how grand, how how great God is in our perspective. That just a short amount of time to us, imagine it's so short to us, imagine what it's like in God's eyes. That a 1,000 years to him is just simple four hours. Not been a long time. But he even goes even further. Because death is knocking at our door. That man's impending death because of the fall, he says in verse 3, that you turn man back into the dust. You say return, O children of man. Which is confidently looking back upon the curse. The dust you shall return. That God is the one who ultimately orchestrates all death. That yes, man does die passively in that sense, but it is an active act of God. That he is the one who ends life. He begins life and he ends it. And he says, return, O man, back to dust from where you came. Then he continues, he says, we're like swept away like a flood. Like, if that doesn't rock your mind, if that doesn't get in your picture, in your mind, then he says, your life is just like a flood. And you think about one piece of paper and water, and a flood comes, and just, that's your life, gone like that, that quickly. You're swept away like a flood. We quickly cease to exist, he says, even after that, like grass. And this time here, grass is used in the Old Testament many times. And when grass is used, it's used to portray the brevity of life. They were living in the wilderness. They know hot weather, but they also knew green grass. But what they knew about this green grass is that when the hot wind came, it would blow the grass with the dust, and immediately that green grass would just die. They, They knew, when the biblical authors used imagery of grass, they knew what they were getting at, that how quick your life is. That like a dandelion that you hold in your hand, and you blow it, and it blows away, that's how quick your life is. That the brevity of our life is so quick that we're like grass, not cedars, not trees, not oaks. No, you're like grass, like a dead leaf that all it takes is a hard wind and you're gone. That's how quick your life is. That's how fragile your life is. Do you see how difficult it is for us to really understand God's eternality? Like you, you see how he has to use illustration after illustration, just so our finite ma- minds can just grasp the understanding. Just how short it is. He uses picture after picture, just to get it through our heads. It's short. It's short, and it's one of the sad realities that are not understood until it's too late. You think about every time you try to wrap your mind around the concept of eternity. I think every all of us go through that. Like when we think about eterni- eternity. The idea that God has always been. Like, what does that do to our minds? Like, I get like a panic attack thinking about it. Like, like all eternity, like never ending, never beginning. When was the beginning? And there's never. I just can't understand it. Like, it's far beyond our minds to grasp. That's the point. And the only way for us to understand it is in the context of God's greatness. The point being that your life is here and now, it'll be gone within the blink of an eye. Doesn't it take every generation? Like you ask any older person about how time flies. Like, weren't you told that when you were a kid? (laughs) And then when we get older, we're going to say the same thing to younger generation? Like, that's told time and time again. Like, we don't understand it. We hear it, but I don't think we understand it until time flies, young one. And then when that young one gets old, time flies, young one. It's like a, a repeated cycle. Like, how often has that been said? But we are not getting it. Ephesians 5.16 reminds us to make the most of your time because the days are evil. Make the most of your time. We can't picture our brevity without this third picture here. And it's God's wrath. God's wrath. Now, Admittedly, God's wrath is probably not the first thing that you would consider as we think about time. But it's here. It's essential. As our life is seen as just a mist, a vapor, our life is fleeting because of God's wrath against sin. But you Think about the shortness of life and God's wrath. That life is fleeting. Life is short because God's wrath against sin. It stems back from Genesis 3 when man was cursed to die because of sin. That ever since then, when man encountered death, time and time again, it was a result of the fall. But here now, in these next few verses, Moses points out here how God's wrath was against them clearly because of sin and the brevity of their own life. He reflects about their own experience with Yahweh while he was in leadership. Now, we don't know exactly when Moses penned this psalm. Something gets around Numbers 14 when Israel rebelled after getting the spies' report of the land. It could be toward the end of his life, like around when he gave the blessing before he died. We don't really know. But here, he's counting out time and time when they had experiences with God and how they reaped from their sin. He reflects about their own experience. He says in verse 7 that we have been consumed by your anger, that by your wrath we have been dismayed. I think dismayed here is a soft word when he says that by your wrath we've been dismayed. Because you can use that word, it really literally means we have been like horrified by your fury, been horrified by your wrath. That they have seen their sin and he has seen how God responded to their sin. And he's just reflecting upon it, God, we have been consumed by it. That you have shortened life time and time again because of sin. That because of of our sin, you shorten lifespan time and time again. We've been consumed by it. He's seen it. He's seen it happen instantly. That they have been dismayed by it, horrified by it. And it was his wrath that they saw in that. And when we should expect to see just a happy ending to the story of someone's life, verse 9 provides the anticlimax to that. We expect of all our days, maybe we would reap some sort of benefit or blessing. At the end of our days, maybe there's some sort of light. Maybe there's a glimmer of hope at the end of our days. But he says in verse 9 that all of our days, they've what? Declined in your fury. And all our years, we finished like a sigh. Like our our days at the end of it, there's no happy ending there. It's, It's exhausting. There are days fled from us their days have ended like a groan like, oh at the end of it what do our years have to show and he's he's reflecting on this just imagine the accounts that must be running through their head that how have they seen god's wrath how have they experienced god's wrath i mean think of nadab and abihu consumed by fire think of the, the sons of korah When the earth opened up and swallowed them up. Like they they saw these things before their eyes. When when they speak of a God of wrath, he knows exactly what he's talking about. He saw God's wrath consume them because of their sin. He saw God's wrath take away human life quickly because of their sin. That they saw it. The plague of the fiery serpents. God's judgment time and time again against his people for sin. And in contrast to the eternal God, what about us? Thinking about you. Like how long are you going to live? He addresses that because he says in verse 10, you know, it, it's almost kind of like laughable. Like why is he even going to talk about this? Like it's for the days of our life now? You want to talk about you? <laughs> like, God is a day for him is just like a thousand years, four hours, a thousand years. But what about you? <laughs> We're talking about your life. Verse 10, they contain 70 years. 80 if you're strong. <laughs> like, is it, you're lucky if you get 80. Is it your days are just so small. So small. So you not to him. Mean, your days are almost over, Don. I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, that's how short our days are. Right? And that's what we should see. Like, we've come to the end of it. Like, your days? 80. 80, that's if you take your vitamins. (laughs) But expect 70. But we have to see here this context of this this short life, it is seen in the reflection of God's wrath. That he's painting this picture there, Lord, I've seen this. That sin had brought about your judgment when you said return to the dust back in Genesis 3. And I even saw that come to even fuller fruition when you cast your judgment on your people for sin. That life is short and we must view it in the context of God's judgment. They've experienced it and he's lamenting it. But here's the heartbreaking issue. Like we all know this to be true. But here's the reason why I think we fall prey and we waste our life. Look at verse 11. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Who understands it? I think the reason why we fail to live fruitful lives is two reasons. Two reasons. We do not fear God. We do not realize who he is. I mean, you can boil it down as we don't fear God. We fail to see his purity and his holiness. If we truly feared God, that would have a purifying effect upon your day to day. He says in verse 11, as we read, that your fury according to the fear that it's due you. That's just a fancy way. Like, we don't understand the fear according to your raging fear. Like, we just don't understand it. Who can understand the power of your anger? He's asking, like, who does really understand this? And I think that's the point here, is that we do not understand the fear of God rightly. Like, we don't understand how serious he takes life, how serious he views sin, how serious he views today. If we really understood this power, this fear, how much of an effect would that have upon us? I think that's the issue, that we don't understand the raging fear. Who understood it? If Nadab and Abihu understood this fear, their life would have turned out differently. The sons of Korah knew who they were contending against. They would have stepped away too. But they did not understand. They did not fear this God who would stand to judge them. Nahum chapter 1 verse 6 says, who can stand before his indignation, his anger? Who can endure the burning of his anger? Who can What we learn about here is I think it's important for us as believers. Like, believer, hear this. Like, we need to understand God's hatred for sin. Like, do you, do you understand and really take to heart his hatred for sin? Like, how often do we underestimate the weight and hideousness of sin? Like, do you see God, how he views it? Like, how his wrath is poured out clearly abundantly upon sin. He hates it. What makes man fail to live their lives in light of his eternality and our vanity is that we don't fear God. We fail to see his wrath. We fail to see it. That if we truly understood it, we'd have a different response. Charles Spurgeon, when he's commenting on this passage, commenting on the very idea of just understanding the wrath of God. And I love what he says about this. He says that the wrath to come has its horrors rather diminished than enhanced in description by the dark lines of human fancy. In other words, he's saying here, the wrath to come, when we try to describe and understand God's wrath, we diminish it because of our human fancy. Because it's easier for us to swallow. Like when you think about eternal wrath, we tend to just back up and just, we, we want to put a little sugar on it because we it, it, it can swallow it a little easier. Like when we think about God's eternal wrath, we back up rather than press in. Because we're so scared and it, it, it has that purifying effect that when we think about God's wrath in eternity, it baffles our words and our imagination can't even catch up to it. Like how do I understand this wrath of God? He continues to say that God is terrible out of his holy places. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Korah and his company. Mark well the graves of lust in the wilderness. Nay, rather bethink of the place where the worm dieth not and their fire is not quenched. Who is able to stand against this justly angry God? Think much about this wrath of this God, that God is a a God of wrath. It's a function of his justice, that he is a God of wrath. And man needs to see this fury. that you need to hear this wrath of God. All of us needs to heed and hear the wrath of God because for all of us to hear, we need to be humbled. But there are even some of us, maybe even in this room, who need to hear this message of God's wrath, his hatred against sin. He sees all things. If he is the God of all time, he has even seen in time every single sin against him. He has seen it all. And for some of us, maybe, we have seen that wrath and understood it, but we have run the other direction. But really the message here in light of God's wrath and hatred against sin, the message to you, sinner, is to run, but run the other way. Run to God, run to the God of salvation, because he sees the secret sins, he sees the heart motives, there is nothing you can hide from this God of all power. If he can take down Pharaoh, you're no match for him. That if you see his wrath, the message is run to this God who saves, and he saves abundantly. Because even after Naam chapter 1, verse 6, when it speaks about who can understand his indignation, he says right after it in verse 7 that the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Where is your refuge at this morning? Where is your refuge at this morning? Where is your hiding place? Where are you hiding? Where is your comfort? What are you trusting in this morning? I'm asking about your soul this morning. Where is your hiding place? The Lord is a stronghold. But, beloved, this is why the precious gospel is a comfort to us. This is why the gospel brings smile upon smile upon the souls of our hearts. Because God, what He's done is yes, this God of wrath poured out his wrath upon his son that he pour out all of his wrath so that the wrath was satisfied in the lord jesus christ on the cross and so we run to our shelter because he bore the wrath in our place and my hiding place is in him my boast is in him and to him we find shelter and because we understand the power of his anger and because we understand the power of his grace we understand that his smiles are ours. That he looks upon you, beloved, and smiles. And always smiles. And nothing you can do can take away that smile. Because that smile is fixed upon the work of Christ. That he looks upon you in Christ and smiles. And in light of all this, as Moses thinks about the wrath that they endured, when he thinks about their brevity of life, When he thinks about how eternal God is, look how he ends this section in verse 12. Because all this is true, so teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days. Why? That we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Lord, would you teach us to realize that we're not granted unlimited days here on earth so that we may make the most of them. God, teach me. Teach me now to number my days. If I can ask you this, if you knew that in death you would meet the Lord Jesus Christ face to face a year from today, how would that change how you live your life? If you knew for certainty that you would face the Lord Jesus Christ face-to-face a year from today, how would that impact your life now? As long I didn't say if you're going to face him tomorrow, well, you could. But I'm not saying about tomorrow because we always give the exaggerated responses. I'm saying if you had 365 days, you knew your days were numbered. I have 365 days. How am I going to spend that 365 days? Tomorrow, okay, I have 364 days left. Like, okay, I, oh, I know I got 360. That's the urgency that we should live our life. That you don't know if you have tomorrow. That your days are numbered no matter who you are. So how does that impact how you approach your life today? How does that approach, uh, impact our planning today? How carefully would you plan your time? how much more eager would you be about fighting besetting sin? How much more intentional would you be with your resources? In other words, how would you redeem the time? If you knew your days were numbered, because they are, but if you knew your days were numbered, how would that change? Because that's really the issue at stake. We don't have a lot of time at all, so we need to use the time to present to the Lord a heart of wisdom. That if you realize your days are numbered, Then why don't we live like that every day? Why don't we live like that every day? The one who takes heed to their brevity and who understands the power of God and his eternality, then that person will make haste to make use of that time that they have now purposefully. That if you understood that, the one who understands, Lord, teach me to number my days. I need to number them. I have a limited amount of them. So, Lord, teach me to be a good steward of them, that I may present to you back a heart of wisdom. Because in those days, I've sought to enrich my soul in truth so that I can use my time purposefully. Because I know that I have 365 more days. And what am I going to do with those days? Now, we also have to stop and reflect. This is, this is a moment of praise. Because in this psalm here... That sin does not have the last word. That God's wrath does not have the last word. Can I get an amen for that? That his wrath does not have the last word. The remainder of the psalm here is really Moses petitioning God with petition after petition, which leaves us at our last picture here. The fourth picture, God's grace. God's grace. In these petitions, he, he pleads for God to have compassion upon them. He's basically pleading, Lord, have compassion. Show us your grace. And he pleads this on the basis of God's own mercy. In verse 13, he says, So, Lord, return to us. Return. Which is so funny. He uses that phrase, return. See, you know your Old Testament well. How, how often did God tell his people, return? <laughs> it's the same word for repent. 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 Turn. Turn. Turn from your ways. And he's here, he's here praying to God, oh, Lord, return to us. Have compassion upon us. Be sorry for your servants. He still sees them. He still views them as servants. Right? Lord, you're, we're servants. Have compassion upon us. Turn back to us, oh, Lord. In light of the God's wrath, Lord, have compassion upon us. And will not God hear that earnest plea? He's returning his cry to God. And as he's praying here, and I want us to picture God's grace, take heart how he's really pointing out here is, is in light of this, because this is true, is Moses really prays for them to be satisfied in God. He prays for them to be satisfied in God because that's really the right response to this issue of time. We're going to tease this out a little bit, but he prays for them to be satisfied in God. Notice how he pleads to be just to be happy in God. In verse fifteen: Make us glad according to the days you afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. In other words, as many di- all the days, Lord, we have seen your judgment. We've seen your strict discipline, Lord. Allow us to see that many more days of blessing. Make us glad. But even more, verse sixteen: Let your work appear to your servants and let your majesty to their children. In other words, he, he's. Comparing his his work to his majesty. Moses wants his people, he wants his children, he wants them to see God's work. Because if they see God's work, they see God's majesty. Lord, make us glad. Let us see you. Let us see your work, your majesty, your wonders. If we truly see that, oh God, then he says, then we'll rejoice. Notice the train of thought in verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning, a new season. Satisfy us in the morning with your hesed, loving kindness, your your grace. Satisfy us. Why? That we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Here as Moses is petitioning God, he's asking, Lord, would you just satisfy us? Make us glad. Let us see your wonder. Let us see your majesty. Let us see you for who you are. God, in light of all this truth that you are the God of time, our life is short, and we are so prone to waste it. So what must we do than to be satisfied in this God who grants us time? What should you do with the reality that you could die today? What could you do? What should you do with the reality that your life is short Here's one prescription to so be satisfied today in your God. Be satisfied in his grace, his grace that has gifted you eternity and eternal life in his son. That the gospel motivates a love for this God who works for this God and produces fruit that he blesses and works by his own hand that to be satisfied in this good God who saves and redeems by his mighty hand so that we can present to him a heart of wisdom. Be satisfied in this God so that we would rejoice in him, sing praise to him all of our days. In other words, let us be satisfied in you that we may rejoice and find purpose in you. I think we know this, but the, the heart of every human heart aches to find purpose. That we're aching to find purpose. What do I do with my life? What am I called to do? And we should ask that of ourselves. But we must start with this right answer. Because those outside of Christ seek to answer this in many different ways that end up harm, harmful and futile. But the heart, your heart aches for purpose. What we must realize is that the purpose of your heart is to find satisfaction in Christ. You will find full fulfillment as you satisfy your your heart, your soul in him. There's, There's no other way around it. That if we seek to find purpose, and if we seek to find that purpose by working our own works we're always going to end up frustrated. We're always going to end up disappointed. We're always going to end up looking for more. But here, I, I know every heart here, I know we're longing for purpose. I know we're longing to see what is my purpose? What am I called to do? But we must understand where Moses directs the heart in light of these truths is let them find gladness and happiness. In other words, be happy in God first. Be happy in God. And once you're happy in God, all the other answers and questions will be answered. Be happy in him. You see this picture of grace in spite of all this, that because of God's grace, because of his abounding mercy, the response is to find it in him. So, Lord, would you make my heart glad? Lord, would you not only teach me to number my days, but, Lord, teach me to find joy in you. Teach me to be satisfied in you. So that no matter what I'm going through, no matter what the issue is, no matter what the struggle is, my joy and my satisfaction is in you and you first. And then he goes from that in verse 17 that he's praying in light of this, because all of this, he prays for permanence. In verse 17, let the favor of our God be upon us. Again, Lord, let your favor be upon us. But look what he says. And confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm for us the work of our hands. He repeats it there for us. He's asking God to do what only God can do. That we must work. But Lord, would we work with your hands? Lord, would you enable us to do fruitful work? In other words, make permanent the work of our hands. Let our work stand. Because some work we do can fall. But any work that God does, it stands. So, Lord... In light of all this, with the time that you have, the short time that you have, your prayer should echo Moses' prayer. Teach me, Lord, to number my days. Lord, let me find satisfaction in you. And Lord, confirm the work of my hands. Lord, make my work fruitful. God, I have many ways to spend my days and my time and my resources, my money, my affections. I have plenty of options and distractions. But Lord, my prayer is for you to make permanent so that the work that I do after I die and I'm forgotten still stands because it's your work. So Lord, make permanent the work of my hands that may our meager hands be used for God's purposes. Rather than being preoccupied by just anything, let our work be blessed by you. As we were reminded in the song we just sang this morning, Psalm 127, that unless the Lord builds the house... The workers strive in vain. We're seeking, Lord, for you to build. So Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are his workmanship. You're his. If you have been saved by grace through faith, you're his work. So why were you created? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. And that work stands because they're prepared by him. You're created for good works, which he prepared beforehand. So here is our prayer, that we're praying for a heart of wisdom that delights in God, which would in turn work in God and produce a permanent work for God's glory. That's our prayer, that we would be useful in the master's hands. That if God is truly the eternal God, if you have known him in Christ, the temptation is to grow weary in doing good. That's an oft temptation, is it not? To grow weary, to go turn astray, to go sigh. How often do our hearts go cold? But our prayer here is, Lord, give me a heart of wisdom. Teach me to number my days that I may work a good work that produces a permanent work for your glory. And praise God, the New Testament outruns above and beyond this prayer, Moses. That it takes this prayer and just runs it to flight. That God answered this prayer abundantly for us in Christ. That because what Christ has accomplished in us, we are able to do far exceedingly abundantly because of what he is doing in us. That he answers our prayer above beyond that. That God is able to make abound every good work for us in Christ Jesus. That what are you seeking to do? Your work that you do, your commitments, your heart, is it anchored in what? What is it anchored in, we must ask. If we understand this truth, how does your perspective on today change? How does your perspective on today drastically change? If this is true, if you really believe this, how does this change your today? I'm not even talking about next year. I'm saying today. Like, how does this change today, your priorities today? How does this change that? Because otherwise, we'd be worse for hearing this and allowing our lives to stay the same. How does this change today? How do our plans, our resources evolve in light of eternity? Now, hear me. We want to be busy with good works. So because that's true, what must we do? We must drench our soul in the unending well of God's goodness and grace. Be satisfied in him. Drink of him. Because when you do, then you delight in his work. If God's work is not delighting to you, if you don't find joy in God's work, if, this is, if it's not a joy to your heart, there are two responses here. Either A, evaluate your own soul to see if you are in Christ. If you don't love what he loves, question and examine yourself, am I in Christ? And secondly, if you are in Christ, then what the response is to drench your soul even further in Christ, to renew your heart, to love what he loves even more. Because even as believers, we can grow faint in doing good. Amen? But the hope is, is that we have hope in Christ. So drench your soul in Christ. Find it in his goodness and his grace. Be satisfied and drink in him so that you love even more what he loves. C.T. Studd, a British missionary. He said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will last. As you work hard, as you sweat, you may even toil day after day. What will remain after you're dead and forgotten? With all the sweat that you sweat day after day, what work will remain after you're dead and forgotten? Redeem the time. Love your spouse. Seek the good for their good for God's glory. Shepherd your kids. Make the most of the time with them. Be the hardest worker on your job as you work heartily for the Lord. Give your time and your resources to God's people, knowing that the church is, God's, is Christ's bride. Give yourself to the gospel in many ways. Give yourself to the gospel of the Lord in many ways, in every way that you can. Consider yourself a living sacrifice. And then when it comes time to the end of your life, when it's all said and done, and you've worked the work that he's given you to to do, you can die and be forgotten. Because his work will still stand. We need to be praying for God to raise up a generation with a heart of wisdom. We need to be praying for that. Work it in me, Lord, but would you raise up a generation that is zealous for good works, a generation that is counting their days. Lord, would you birth in this church a generation that counts their days, that numbers their days, and is zealous about redeeming the time. So the remaining question is, what will you do with the remaining time that is on your clock? Let's pray. Father, as we encounter these humbling realities, our only, only response is to say thank you that you have given to us everything we need for life and godliness. We're not called to do anything in our own strength, but we rest heartily upon the work of Christ. And so, Lord, would you work in our hands a work that is permanent. May we work in Christ, and may you use us, God, to be a vessel of your glory, for your glory. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.